Well, you can, uh, we, we've done a little bit of typical Christmas texts and uh, not typical Christmas texts, and this morning is another non-typical one. So you can flip to Ephesians chapter 2, and that's going to be our main text, but as with the last few Sundays, we're going to bounce around like crazy. So feel free to either just look at the screen behind you, or if you like to, to do a little sword drill type of scenario, then you can do that as well. Uh, it's kind of hard to believe, but this is the last Sunday of Advent. Uh, Christmas Eve comes on Friday, of course, and Ernie mentioned all those things. So if you would like to attend, please, please make sure you sign up uh, online. Janet, do we have a count as to how many are left, give or take? Okay, so, so I'm just going to say there's not a lot of room left. And so if you would like to join, please do. We will be streaming it, of course, for those of you who can't make it or, or need to watch uh, at a later date as well. Uh, this morning, so we've, we've looked at hope, peace, joy, and this morning we look at love. And it, love is just this very fitting thing for us to talk about uh, simply because love is at the very center of the gospel. Love is at the very heart of everything. And so this is a, a something that we need to remind ourselves of so, so often. In John 13, 34, 35, Jesus said this to his disciples, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if you're a Christian, then the love that comes out of you, specifically in this text, how you treat your brothers and sisters in the Lord, will be the defining thing that people can see and go, man, that person is a disciple of Jesus. Look how they care for one another. So that's hugely important for us, and, and I just want to thank you uh, publicly as a church. You guys have, have been that for us over the last three years. This has been uh, a difficult two years to navigate in many ways with uncertainties and confusion and, and nobody really certain as nobody's walked through this before. And our church has remained united and caring for one another and loving one another. And I'm so, so thankful for that. And I think that we are living out the text that Jesus has said to us here, that as we have cared for one another, despite maybe some of the disagreements that we've had about the different restrictions or our different preferences on different things, Everyone has loved and cared and respect for one another, and I'm so, so thankful for that. But love isn't just about loving one another uh, that are in your family of, of Christ, but also in Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So as a Christian, you're to love one another in a very unique and a radical way, but also we're to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute. Now again, I know this is a familiar text to us, but I wonder how many of us, when we have our prayer times with God, sit down and, and pray that we would learn to love our enemies and those who are persecuting us, we would pray for them. I wonder how often we do that. It's much easier to pray for the things in, in my life, the things that are going on, the struggles that I'm having, the difficulties, the uncertainties. It's really easy to become focused only on me. And Jesus says, no, take your gaze and not only go towards your brothers and sisters, but now to those who hate you. The primary thing that should look different about you as a disciple of Jesus is how you love one another. Every single person that you come in contact with. Because love is at the very heart of everything. 
So here's the question. Uh, maybe it's the obvious question. Is how can I possibly love? I wrote everybody, but perhaps it's almost even anybody. How can we love people with that kind of unconditional love? Well, here's the good news. In 1 John 4, 10 to 12, John writes this verse. He says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. John simply reminds us, you are called to do this and, and God has equipped you to do this. First of all, Jesus lived his life that way. He didn't just call his disciples to love one another without radically loving them. When he says that in John 13, this new commandment, this is right after he's washed the disciples' feet. The greatest of all becomes the servant of all. And he teaches that. Then he says to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What are some of Jesus' last words as he's dying on the cross? Father, forgive them. Jesus lived this for us, and John says he loved us. Not be, not, we didn't love him, but he first loved us. The truth of the gospel is that when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you were given the Holy Spirit, that you might be able to love people the way that God has loved you. It is impossible to love in this context that we've said here if we are basing it on our own efforts and our own ability. We can't do that. And so we call out to God and we say, God, thank you that you sent Jesus, that he modeled to us what this looks like to love one another radically and sacrificially, how we can serve one another. And then we thank him that the Holy Spirit has come into my life and that I can love the way that God has loved me, at least in some part. Let's flip to Ephesians 2 now. A few years ago, um, shortly after we moved here, we were doing a young, Bible, a young adult Bible study through Ephesians 2, and we came to this text, and I asked Phil if he would teach on this text. And Phil did a wonderful job, and, and as he taught on this text, he gave us a word picture that has sat with me over the years. I probably haven't told Phil this. But as we've, and, and actually right now in our young adult group, we're going through this text again, and I just used the same imagery. And so whether Phil came up with this himself or whether you stole it from somebody else, I don't know. Uh, and, and you can ask Phil that after if you want. But as we read through this text, I want you to think about your view of what salvation looks like. If you had to put salvation in a word picture, what would it look like? And after we read it, I'm going to share with what Phil shared with us a couple of years back. So it says this, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. 
It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. So as you think about this word picture, what might it look like what, when we try to think of salvation? What does it look like? Well, Phil asked us this question and then gave us two responses. One that is a very typical understanding and one that we can kind of feel like we relate to, and then another one. And I'll explain the difference here in a moment. But this first view is simply this. We, as people, uh, we view it as, as this idea of, so there's a well. And you've fallen into the well and you're struggling and you're trying to stay afloat and, and there's no way for you to get out. And then after a certain period of time, there's nothing left. You're kicking and fighting for all your worth, but your muscles are done. You, you have no ability to do anything left. And so you cry out in that moment and you say, God, would you rescue me? And so God reaches down and you reach up and you grab his hand and he pulls you out of the well. What a beautiful picture. However, it's completely heretical. That's the way we view salvation. But that's not the way the Bible talks about salvation. More accurate to what we read here, what does it say in verse 1? Does it say you were drowning? What does it say? You were dead. What can dead men do? Nothing. Nothing. And so Phil walked us through this picture, and, and you know, you're kind of sitting there going, yeah, that's just this beautiful picture of salvation. No, it's not. It actually makes me the initiator of my salvation. What Scripture teaches is that God is the initiator not me. What the text says here is you have actually fallen down that well. You and I, all of us, we've fallen down and we're, we fought and we fought and we couldn't do it until the point where we actually died and were laying face down in the water with no ability to cry out to God. No ability to reach up towards Him. And in His gracious love and mercy for us, He reaches down, He picks us up out of that and He breathes life back into the dead. That's what it tells us here in Ephesians 2. That's the importance of the gospel. That's the importance of God's love for us. And so if we ever go through a season where we don't feel like God is loving towards us, we remember what the true gospel is and we go, of course he loves us because he rescued me, not when I was desperate and in need of help. He rescued me when I was dead. And I don't want to belabor that point too much, but I also kind of do want to because it's so important that that's the view of the gospel that we look at. Because so often we have this idea of like, well, well I initiated, like it's because, of, it's because of me. No, it's because of God. He loved you. And when you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, then it is Christ who reached down to you. Notice what verse 5 says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. What is the very definition of the word grace? Unmerited favor. Something you do not deserve. You haven't cried out and he's looked down and go, man, Greg, he's just this wonder. I, I should save him. He's worthy of it. That's not what the Bible teaches. 
And when I start to see that in my own heart and I start to realize that salvation has nothing to do with me, I'm not the initiator of it, but God is the initiator reaching down to grab me. When we start to view it in the context in which the Bible reveals it to us, we start to see that God's love is far greater than we could ever imagine. So when we get to a a question like, why would God do this? Well, the text already answered this for us in verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. And it almost is a redundant point, but he's trying to make this very clear. Why did God save you? Not because you were worthy of saving, but because he loved you. I think that's actually the greatest news we could possibly have. It's not about me, it's about the Father who loves me so desperately that when I had nothing left and when we might look at it going, it's impossible to save that person, God reaches down, he saves them, and he breathes life back into them. That is the greatest news we could have. And for you, think of it in this context, in in your world, your family, that person that maybe has rejected Christ and is living only for themselves, and we go, there's no hope there, then we go, great news, because God can save dead people. That is excellent news. No one is too far gone that Christ can't reach down, grab a hold of them, and save them. I think that once we accept this truth, it changes the way in which we read all of Scripture. Suddenly, the Old Testament becomes very clear that it's about God's love for His people who constantly turn away from God. And they start worshiping other gods or other idols or perhaps their own self. That's probably more common in our world today is the worship of self. But as we read through the Old Testament, we see that God is faithful and that people are as unfaithful as they possibly could be, and yet he continues to show grace and mercy. Yes, there are consequences from time to time, and, and that is God is totally justifiable in doing that, but he continues to love, he continues to promise, I am going to deal with your hard heart. In Jeremiah, it says that he's going to make this, or is it Ezekiel? Now I'm panicking. Ezekiel, yes. He's going to give us this heart of flesh that is malleable, that is soft, because we so often get hard-hearted. Well, this is the whole reason that 2000, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus came. This is the reason we as the church come to celebrate, because God first loved us, and that he planned that there would be a way to deal with sin. And before we get too far into that, because that's Friday's sermon, Remember this, that God loves you more desperately than you could ever imagine. We say it often this way, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It's probably the most well-known Bible verse in all of Scripture. It's something that we memorize when we're young and hopefully we remind ourselves of often. But that very following verse is something that we often forget, but centers the gospel so importantly for us. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Only Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive our sins. 
And he came not to condemn us, not to show us our need of him. When we're honest with ourselves, we already realize that we can't do it on our own. But he came that we might have salvation. In one of my seminary classes I took last year, one of the professors was dealing with uh, various reasons that people might choose not to come to faith in God, choose to reject God at least in our time. And he said, one of the biggest things is this, is we don't want to worship a God who has the right to say no. He further explained, because God is all-knowing, he understands our needs, and so sometimes he says no to us, to a particular prayer or a heart's desire, simply because it's the wrong thing for us. Perhaps because it's even bad or harmful to us. And sometimes he says no to us for no logical reason that we can come up with. And so the question then becomes is, will we trust a God who can say no? And so when we read through Scripture, we can, we can ask these questions of, how could a loving God allow so much evil on the earth? How could a loving God send people to hell? It's because we have a very specific, fixed view of what we think love is. Well, this last week, I got a really good view of this from a friend of mine. I was in, uh, in, I don't know what you call it, the barber chair, I guess, with uh, my friend Paul. Some of you know Paul very well. Well, Paul has a little baby named Poppy who's 10 months old. And as we were talking about uh, what's going on in in kind of the the parenting of a 10-month-old, right? For full disclosure, I have no idea what that means. Smonga came to live with us when he was almost two, so I never give any advice under two. I know nothing. But Paul was talking to me about this, and he said, one day they were sitting on the bed, the two of them, and, and Poppy was racing to the edge, and he said, at 10 months, she's getting pretty quick. And she's racing to the edge of the bed, and she wants to just launch herself off into the unknown abyss. And so what does Paul do? Reaches down and grabs her before she gets to the edge. And he said it was crazy because he started to see she was getting actually angry with him. Let me go off the edge. I want to see what's down there. Well, Paul, as the loving father, knows what's down there is not good, at least not in this context right now. And so he's talking to me about this, and then he says, Greg, in that moment I started to realize that I am the baby and God's the father. And I'm racing towards the edge of something that I think that I need, that I want. And I can logically explain all the reasons why it would be good for me. And God is this father who has way more perspective than I do. And he stops me before I jump off the edge and pulls me back. And I thought, man, Paul, that is a beautiful picture. And so I I asked if I could have approval to use that story. And I told him that all honorariums could be sent to him for that. So I take no credit for that example. But I just thought it was this beautiful picture. Because it does put this perspective in us where we realize if I as a father with my little child know best and yet they get frustrated and they get angry. Any of you parents here, we're just preaching to the choir. You know, you've been there. This is not good for you. But that's all I want in the entire world and you can't stop me. And and there comes a point where you as a parent can't. And they start to go and do their own thing. Well, if we look at it in this context as God is this Father who loves us and He's giving us what is for our good. I've joked about this lots lately, but Romans 8 has just been constantly on my mind. And so one day I'm not going to quote Romans 8, but it's not yet. Romans 8, 28, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. We are promised that God is at work in our life and He has good for us in store. 
But we have to redefine what good is. Just like we have to redefine what love is. Sometimes love means saying no. And you know that as a parent with your children. But then it's so easy to forget that and then to all of a sudden now we, I have this image in my head of me as this 38-year-old man being a little baby on the bed going, no, I'm jumping off. And God going, I love you far too much to allow you to hurt yourself like that. Just trust me. Do we trust God? When God says no, when God, gives, when God doesn't give us something which we logically think, this has to be good, this has to be what's right, this has to be what's best for me, are we willing to say it is not only possible, but it is true that God knows better than me and that God loves me? If anything from Scripture is true, we see and we know that God is gracious and merciful. And because of the great love with which He loved us, He has expressed this mercy and grace to us because He wants to be in relationship with us. God loves you. He has good in store for you. And so remember when you go through those hard times that what's your good and what's God's good might be two different things. And trust that God knows with far greater perspective and far greater clarity anything that we could ever. For, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Now, we could just end right there and I wrestled with to do that, but I would be remiss to deal with verses 9 and 10. It's not a result of works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. What we learn in here is not only has God called us to salvation, not only has he reached down and pulled us out and breathed life into us, but now he's actually got plans and purpose for your life. And what it says is God is so all-knowing that he's created all these things for you beforehand, in advance. Before you were even a, a thought on the earth, God already had purpose and meaning for you. And so whatever you are walking through today, tomorrow, in the coming days, know that God has ordained this. He is at work in your life. And so whatever's in front of you, if it feels too big to overcome, too much, it's too overwhelming, know that God already knows that this moment's here and he's just asking you to trust in him and to rely on him for strength. Again, I think this is great news because what it means then is it's not about me, it's about him. God has prepared what he wants for me to do in my life. And he has equipped me to trust him and, to give, and he's given me the Holy Spirit that I could walk in these things, that I could live with meaning and purpose. And, and perhaps even crazier than that is I have the opportunity to show Christ to others with how I live. And so when you walk through whatever you're going to walk through this week, know that none of this has surprised God. He has purpose and meaning in this week for you coming ahead. And that you can point others towards him. Why? Because of the great love with which he loved you. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Let's pray.
God, thank you for your love for us. God, when we read Scripture, would we read it with this context, knowing that it's not because of me, but it's because of you. That the only reason that I am in your family is because you initiated to me, that you reached down, and that you picked me. And God, I am so grateful for your love. God, would you help us to trust you? Would we not be like a 10-month-old crawling off the edge of the bed thinking that we know what's best? But would we trust you that a loving God is in control of our lives? And so even when we go through hardships and pains and difficulties, you are at work within that and you are giving us opportunity to declare to others by how we live that we trust you amidst difficult circumstances. And the reason we can trust you is because you loved us far before we loved you. God, I'm reminded that in Romans it says that while we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Help us to remember that you are the initiator. That you love us far more than we could ever grasp or understand. And may we live in the strength of the Holy Spirit that we can pass on that love, that radical, unconditional, self-sacrificing love. We have the capability through the power of the Spirit to pass that on to others. God, may the world see the love that we have for one another and for our enemies. And may they see that and go, that's what I need. Because that love comes from you. God, help us to dwell on these things in these coming days as we lead up to Christmas Eve and to Christmas Day. Thank you that you first loved us. Amen. Thank you for joining us again this morning. We look forward to seeing many of you on Friday for Christmas Eve. Reminder to make sure to send an email in to sign up if you'd like to be here. And I look forward very much to seeing you all then. Bye-bye.